And, you know, I, I want to let you know that. Um, but we, we're beginning a new series in Philippians today, and I was really struggling. I had a few ideas of what we were going to do for our next series, and I was really struggling. And my problem is I usually, like, am a year out in my planning, and I'm not there right now. Um, and, and Rachel, who is our prayer coordinator, said to me that she thought that this book spoke to us right now. And when your prayer coordinator speaks to you, you listen. And I went home and I read through it again, and lo and behold, it really does speak to us. It speaks loudly with with sort of the right words and, you know, uh, with images of lockdown and, you know, captivity, imprisonment, unity, interdependence, um, addressing anxiety, which I think we're all feeling right now, and the joy that we can have in the midst of all this stuff, and missing Christian fellowship, not being together and uh, the supremacy of Christ in the book is awesome, and unity and all that kind of stuff. And so Rachel was right, and so that's where we're going, for at least for a few weeks here. Um, and we begin today with very simply, what you see up on the screen there, uh, his, Paul's salutation uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul and Timothy, uh, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people. And I want you to think that every single word here is important, right? So all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, my purpose today is none other than to introduce you to Paul's heart in this letter, to the people that he writes to in Philippi, um, you know, to give a little context of the letter, and also to generate some, some excitement about what we will hear in the coming weeks. And letters are a glimpse into the heart of a person, right? You, you, it's easier to, to see the soul and character of a person when you, you read their letter that they've written to a loved one, so to speak. And a letter is one side of a dialogue, so it's hard to understand the situation unless you hear both sides. And sometimes in Scripture, we only have the one side of the dialogue. We have some history and everything that we can learn things from, but you know, it, it, we have to like glean things from this in, in certain ways. But this letter... Let me, let me just say this really clearly. This letter wasn't meant by Paul to be an academic exercise. It, wasn't, it, was rather, it was a human document written by a friend to his missed friends, right? The people that he longed to be around and to a specific situation in which they faced. And he didn't sit down to write this theological treatise, right? He, he didn't... Um, you know, think that he would be adding to the literature of the day. He didn't think that we would be reading it now in 2020 and thinking that it's the holy scripture of God and all that kind of stuff. He was just writing a letter, right? It, this, but it does, none of that diminishes its importance or its transcendence in time and culture. Like, like a good love song to a particular person, it continually speaks to us all the time throughout history. It's precisely that it's written with this this heart and to a specific need which makes it throb with life. And I'm, I'm getting more and more excited about this book as I look into it. Um, you know, we have to understand human need doesn't change. Human need does not change. 
All throughout, no matter what time in history, human need doesn't change. Human sin and its devastation in the social fabric, fabric of life is ongoing and it's seeded with the same pride, the same selfishness, the same greed, the same lust since the fall in Genesis, right? And we all know that and we see that like playing out all throughout our society in different ways right now. You know, the different situations that we find ourselves or, or find emerging in our um, in history, uh, although populated with different characters and dress and all that kind of stuff, they are basically cyclical. We kind of go through the same things over and over and over again. We deal with the same problems uh, in the church and the world, all, you know, in a cyclical way. Errant philosophies, you know, whether they, they be political or social or theological, are only sort of redressed and relabeled and. Uh, in essence, they're the same lies that we fought all throughout history. And we know that. We, we, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it was better back then, or you know, it was better way, way back then. No, th- things change and change and change, but they come around, they come around, and they come around. And so this letter is like a love song, in a sense, rising above culture and history, speaking down to us throughout time, always relevant and always encouraging if we allow it to teach the lessons and the joy uh, that it was intended to teach, right, to the, its original leader, readers and also to us. Paul, but Paul didn't sit at a desk quietly, like crafting every little word, thinking that it was it had to be perfect, thinking that it was going to be included in the canon of Scripture and all that kind of stuff. He paced back and forth, probably dictating to somebody, you know, just passionate words falling over each other, just to connect and help these people in Philippi, his brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The people that he longs to be with. And like Paul, imprisoned, uh, you know, we continue to be on lockdown, right? We, we are experiencing things. We've experienced this spiritual pressure in our lives probably more than we ever have before. Some of us have even experienced social persecution in our current climate of the world. We, we long for reconnection, don't we? We, we long for encouragement. Ugh. We long for fellowship. Like when to sing in that song, just the first few lines, I already started crying, and I'm going to again. It's just, you know, we just want to be with each other, right? That's what we want. And we, you know, we've felt our joy ebb away as it seems that peace and fun have almost been outlawed in society today. It's like if you're not angry and, you know, really mad about something or divisive, then you're not thinking and you're not, you know, you're in the wrong and stuff like that. So we need these words more than we ever have before right now. And I hope you can get as excited as I am about studying this book. You know, Philippians is filled with wonderful little sound bites which lodge in our thinking as we read them. Uh, I'm just going to quote a few. This is where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow, that's a powerful statement, right? He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, right? Not looking to your own interest but each of you should look to the interest of others you know he says continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling right for it is god who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose and don't we need to hear that that god is still working in us every single one of us he is working in us and he's working in us as a body and 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 as a people 
He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will again say, rejoice, right? Do not be, now this is a good one, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about the pastor preaching without a mask on. I, you know, don't be anxious you know, about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. Isn't that true? Don't you need to learn how to do that? And you can. By the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word of God in your life, you can learn these things. He says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And then maybe the most pertinent thing, he says in chapter 4, and later we'll study this more, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, think about that, whatever is true, we don't even know what's true anymore, right? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or trustworthy, think about such things. How much garbage are we feeding ourselves, right? Whatever you have learned or received from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Those are all good, meaty words coming right out of the book of Philippians for us. And there are many more in these four, four short chapters. It, and they, I, let me remind you, they are not pithy sayings, right? They are not pithy sayings. They are things to be believed, to be grasped hold of. They are things um, that can change our lives. They are deep theological commands, so to speak. You know, guiding truths to be applied to life, leading to deep connection with Christ and with others. And that's exciting. Philippians has been called the epistle of joy, right? And that's part of the reason we chose this book right now. But joy, you've got to understand, it is joy that Paul experienced while he was in Roman captivity, right? Not a place that you want to be with his leadership also contested by usurpers out there in the larger church body. So, you know, Philippians seeks to make sense of a gospel of goodness when it doesn't seem like the world is very good, right? Or when everybody seems to attack you. Paul's been attacked both from the outside world and from the internal world of those that call themselves Christians. That feels familiar to all of us, I think. We've all had those run-ins. And through that lens, I hope that these verses take on their intended depth and power for us. So we get background for this letter from the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 16. If you remember the story, Paul and Barnabas had returned from the council of Jerusalem and, and with that council's decisive sort of watershed decision that, the, that Gentile believers didn't have to be circumcised or you know, adopt Jewish customs to be saved. But the gospel had been sort of released at that moment from any undermining or from any hindrance, Right? And Paul and Barnabas then separated, if you remember, and Paul took Silas and he went out on his second missionary journey and and then Timothy later joined them in Lystra. And then Paul's plan was always to, or at that moment, was to retrace his steps uh, of his first missionary journey. We kind of get into habits, don't we? We do the same things. And and he was going to just go and encourage all the churches. But God had a different plan. 
And they, you know, so they traveled west and they, they attempted to go down to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit redirected them. You know, he, he wanted to take them someplace else. So they tried to go north to Bithynia and, and, you know, on the Black Sea. And again, the Spirit wouldn't allow it. <clears throat> he blocked their way. <clears throat> so Paul and Silas and Timothy were funneled west towards Troas to the mouth of the Dardanelles Straits to the gateway of Europe. And God wanted the gospel to go out into Europe, right? And there Luke joined them, and they became like this dynamic... Sorry, i got a bug in my throat. throat) This dynamic foursome, sort of like a Marvel, uh, you know, super people, you know, whatever. But it was there at the Dardanelles, which is today's modern Greece, um, in northern Greece, where Paul beheld standing before him this vision of a Macedonian man, if you remember that, it was a night vision, and, and the urging him, and Luke says it this way, he says, the man was saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is like how the gospel goes out, right? This, the, these are how, this is how God uses the church to move into new areas. This is a spirit-led journey. If you, if, you, if you think about that, God wanted them there and moved them there. It's, it's one of the great turning points in history as Paul and the others made this two-day crossing to, to Neapolis, walking nine miles along the Ignatian Way to Philippi. And by doing so, the gospel came into Europe. And that's kind of exciting if you really think about it. Philippi's inhabitants were only about 10,000 people at most. They, it rested on this little shoulder of land, and it was crowned by an acropolis guarding the Via Ignatia, this famous highway at the time between Rome and her eastern empire. And Philippi had been founded by Greeks way back in the 4th century B.C., Philip of Macedonia, had, you know, the father of Alexander the Great, had named it after himself. But Philippi eventually became this Roman colony, and that's an important fact. And as such, it was governed by Roman law. Romans moved there and populated the place. Latin became the official language. They wore Roman dress. You know, public inscriptions on all the buildings and the forum were in Latin. So the leadership and the aristocracy of Philippi were completely Roman and Latin. And so this created there this, this Greek-speaking underclass, right? And, and, and it was largely to these sort of very regular people, construction workers, tradesmen, merchants, and all that, that Paul went and served with the gospel. As a matter of fact, the story of Paul's time in Philippi in Acts 16 is a story that is largely about three people. It, firstly, it's about Lydia, who is a, probably of the upper class and a dealer in purple, which were expensive fabrics and things like that. Uh, a Roman jailer, if you remember that guy, who, who, remember, who re- resembled this sturdy middle class person, right? And then you have this slave girl who would have been of, of the very lowest of class in that story, which re- really reflects, you know, church in all its glory, extending across you know, through class, through economic lines and all that kind of stuff, just embracing everybody. Paul had to leave that city due to to, uh, persecution and and illegal imprisonment, and the church inherited his persecution as he left, which is why it's said that they shared his bonds and his defense of the gospel. 
right? So they were, they were in it. They were in it to win it, right? And Paul's custom was, you know, when he, whenever he entered a town, he, was, he went straight to the, the, to the synagogue first to preach to the Jews there. I mean, he, that was his custom to do that first. And, and, um, but there were so few in this city that the, the necessary quorum of 10 men wasn't there to make up a synagogue. But you would have these people that usually would, would be believers in God and they would kind of gather anywhere in certain places, usually along the river and waiting for a sort, sort of an itinerant preacher to come along and tell them something, whatever. So after a few days, Paul discovers a, this little Sabbath congregation meeting alongside the river outside the city walls. And it, it's a group of God-fearing Gentile women. Listen to that, women. You guys started it, right, in Europe. This is your story, right? A group of God-fearing Gentile women meeting in this place of prayer, worshiping the God of Israel. I mean, think about that. They probably didn't know much about what they were doing. They were just doing it, right? They were just following the Spirit themselves. And this became the first, these women became the first Christians of Philippi, right? And that's kind of exciting to me. The first was Lydia, a merchant, as I said, and as Luke tells it in Acts 16:14, it says, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She received it, right? So it seems that the man of, in the Macedonian vision turned out to be a woman, <laughs> right? And uh, Lydia and her entire household believed that day, and they were all baptized on the spot. Amen to that. But spiritual opposition was immediate. There was a, in, in this young girl, as I had mentioned her earlier, she was possessed by this f- spirit of divination, and she was loud, she was incessant, and she was screaming, and she's out there screaming, and this sounds good, right? She says, these men are servants of the Most High God, and who, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's what she's screaming. You would think that's a good thing, but Oddly, this was a demonic attempt to co-opt the gospel and to destroy it in its very infantile beginnings, right? Because in a very, very Roman city, it wasn't a welcome message. It was not at all a welcome message, sort of like the mainline today, <laughs> right? This is where we live. We live in Philippi, right? This is what, what we experience there are certain areas, and I think you guys would, would nod and agree with me on this, and if you want to shout amen, by the way, we do that here, and it's very encouraging the pastor when I hear an amen, so, so go ahead and say it if you want to. But there are certain areas which are harder to minister within. There really are. And I believe the Eastern Main Line is one of those places. Billy Graham, somebody told me this last night, that Billy Graham said that, that out of all the places he traveled and preached the gospel, the main line was the most closed. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And if it's true, <laughs> I, I shouldn't say things that I don't really, you know, can't really you know, check on. But that's what somebody, t- and I trust the guy that told me that last night. Um, He's pretty good with his history. But, uh, you know, Christian groups and churches struggle to see fruit in this area as compared with others. For instance, you know, ministries such as Young Life, which is, you know, for high schools and crew and college, you know, they thrive in other areas. But they struggle along here with 10, maybe as many as 30 kids. I think uh, Haverford Young Life at its highest had 60 kids in my living room. But that was at its highest, and that was only really one, one year or one or two years. 
Um, but Young Life and things like that are barred in many of the high schools around here. You can't get in there uh, to minister as, as Young Life leaders. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't called us to break through this spiritual veil of darkness in this area. And that's not a criticism of all the people here. It is just a truth. And we are the church. We are the local church called to break through with the gospel, called to love people with our words and our actions that bring them into the light of Christ. And that's, that's very exciting. And, and Philippi is proof that it can happen and a whole region can change because of the ministry of a few people. Amen to that, right? But that, you know... Paul commanded, at that moment, he commanded the spirit to leave that little girl and found himself in deep trouble at the moment because he, he, he had driven out the girl's owner's uh, you know, source of income. They got pretty upset about that. So Paul and Silas were seized and they were taken to the Roman magistrates and identified as Jews and they were savagely beaten. You ready to be beaten for the gospel? <laughs> I don't know, man. That's like that's that's where the rubber meets the road. But you know, bruised and bleeding, bleeding. You know what I mean? You you think they would be like you know sucking their thumb in the prison? You know, like we got just got beaten up. But bruised and bleeding in prison, they start singing hymns to God. Think about that, right? Singing hymns to God, you're bleeding and everything else until an earthquake opens the doors of the prison. If you remember that, right? And they didn't leave. You know, as a, and as a result, the gospel further invaded Europe. As the jailer cries out, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And he was baptized. They were all baptized at that moment. Paul and Silas, again, refused to leave the prison that day. And when the magistrates learned that they were Roman citizens... Their arrogance turned to profuse apologies, and they urged them to leave the town quietly. Paul even said, no, we're not going to leave. they got to come escort us out <laughs> if they want us to go, right? He was, he was pulling punches there. And, and they, they did leave, but they, but they stopped by Lydia's place first, and they were undoubtedly you know, filled with tears and laughter as they, you know, in her home. Possibly they sang some of those songs together from the prison, and certainly there was praise and thanksgiving to God and the prayers for the, this new fledgling church that was starting. And the flag of the gospel had been raised there, adding to the body of Christ, the diversity of the body of Christ and the wonderful richness of it. Paul had a unique closeness to the Philippian church. And we see that in these warm and friendly expressions in this letter. Paul makes this clear right after his greeting when he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. He just speaks in the superlative all the time about these people. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the word partnership is the Greek word koinonia or fellowship. You've heard that word before. Paul feels a warm, deep fellowship in the gospel with these people, as I do with all of you. Even if I don't know you, I, I, uh, I, I feel that with you. The, the same word, fellowship or partnership or its derivative, appears six times in just four short chapters of Philippians. And fellowship... It's a fellowship of a deep, mutual commitment to the gospel, which grew from their commitment to support Paul's mission, both spiritually and materially, right? 
Now, while there are various reasons for Paul's writing, this letter comes, we have to understand, from the depth of fellowship he shared in the gospel with them. And this accounts for this feel of the letter and how he chooses his words and how he, how he speaks to them. And this is, why, this is why the book and why we're titling this The Fellowship of the Gospel. So it's a unified fellowship of of friends, of compatriots, bound together in the greatest cause, and that is the gospel, just like us, what we do here and through this church. You know, Paul wrote this letter years after the church's founding, due to their financial support of him as a prisoner in Rome, the the gift had been carried to him by a church member, Epaphroditus. And if you remember, he almost died during that journey. And when he recovered and he re- prepared to return, Paul asked him to carry the letter back. And he arrives, you know, probably around 80, 60, 62. And Paul's letter reveals many purposes. To express gratitude for their generosity, to explain why he sent Epaphroditus back so quickly quickly to catch them up to inform them he would shortly be sending timothy along to them to warn them of judaizers which we'll talk about in coming weeks and urge them to stand firm in unity unity has been such a key word for us all summer long and going into the fall it's still going to be there because the unity of the church is really in question right now and i mean church broad church uh, in that language. It is really in question right now. There's a lot of things just pulling and tugging at us, and Satan would love to just rip us apart, right? But undergirding these purposes was the reality of their gospel fellowship, their work of the kingdom together. And these very words of Paul's greeting evoke an attitude of partnership with the Philippians. He doesn't use his title, Apostle. He doesn't say Paul, Apostle of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say that. Um, uh, You know, he... uh, he, he, he puts himself on the same line with Timothy. Timothy says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, right? And so the disuse of his title, you know, evidences that, that, that this familiar warmth in, which existed between him and these Philippian believers. His inclusion of Timothy as co-author indicates that Paul would share his authority with anybody who was willing to partner in the gospel, Right? So Paul identifies himself and Timothy as servants, or the literal translation is slaves, of Christ Jesus. A term, you know, it's in its Philippian and Roman context carried, you know, negative connotations just as much as they do for us today. Paul knew exactly what he was saying because the only other time he uses this word is in two seven, where he refers to Christ, who took on the form of being a slave. However, slaves at that moment in history, at that time, were often given great responsibility and could do very well for themselves in representing their masters, but still they were living property of somebody else. They didn't have their own identity, their own selves. And and, and in all things, they represented their master's wishes and desires. Paul says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with them, with, with the overseers and deacons. 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 <laughs> deacons. So while he recognizes church leadership right here, 
He really is emphasizing every single person, every every Philippian believer as what? As holy. Do you think of yourself that way? I think of you that way as your pastor. I really do. As holy, as hagios, as set apart. That's what it means. Right? Paul wasn't playing favorites, right? Everybody gets to play. Everyone's set apart. Everyone's made special to represent Christ in this community as hard as it would be for them. Everybody gets all the pain and all the joy at the same time, right? They would share in all the tribulation and all the good stuff as well alongside Paul. His emphasis on everyone foreshadows this call to unity which he powerfully voices throughout this letter, a message we so desperately need to keep talking about today. It's a message of equity in the gospel. And equity is a popular word right now, but people, you know, sometimes people don't really, you know, want the pain, but they only want the pleasure of an equitable life. Right? We, it means everyone pulling their own weight, all oars in the water, everyone, you know, pulling together, everyone's getting blisters on their hands, you know, as, as we row the ship of God's kingdom through the water, picking up people and throwing them on deck all throughout life. Paul and the Philippians' fellowship and partnership in the gospel gives us theological and relational context and the texture of this major, all these major themes. At the very heart of this letter is Paul's call to the Philippians to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's an important thing right now. There are so many things that would seek to undermine our holiness, our purity, and our witness as a result. So he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ in chapter 1, verse 27. And as such... Living the gospel-worthy life becomes this theme all throughout the end of, of, of chapter 2. And to live a life worthy of the gospel, there must be unity in the church, right? You know, I was talking to somebody, this is a side note, I was talking to somebody recently about, you know, sort of this propensity right now to be good listeners. And I agree with that. I want to be a good listener. I want to listen to people. But it it often falls off the cliff when you just be a good listener, but you never proclaim anything. Right? You're listening so much that, that people in their falsehoods live in that falsehood continually. We are called to proclaim truth. And unity means we agree with truth. We agree with where God is taking us, what God says about life and about the human condition and all that stuff. He says, stand firm, right? He says, the, to live, the worthy, the, uh, live worthy of the gospel means unity. And then he says, stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as, as one for the faith of the gospel. In gospel partnership, they, they've got to be like-minded. They have to look to the interest of others. They have to have the mind of Christ. They have to work out their salvation with fear and trembling as God works in them, right? And they have to believe that that's really happening. Sometimes we don't believe it, right? And then, like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul himself, he says, you know, model us. You know, these are men of integrity who have proven themselves worthy in walking out the gospel. They have suffered for Christ themselves and retained their joy in it. 
Those are people to watch. Those are people to emulate, right, in life. And we have those all around us right now, in this church and even in the larger body of Christ, but mostly in this church. You guys are awesome. You're much better than all the other churches. No, I'm just kidding. But all this said, Christ is the absolute center of this letter. And that's probably the most exciting thing. No other noun occurs more often in the book of Philippians than Christ's name, right? The Christology of the hymn of Christ in chapter 2 can be said to underpin. It's like the, it's like the mooring things on a dock, right? Just holding it, everything else up. Um, Philippians is about, you know, Christ and people in Christ, people in the fellowship of the gospel together because they're in Jesus, whose citizenship is really in heaven. Whatever's going on with our government and everything else and elections, really, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippi, although proud of being Roman, was set far off from the center of the Roman Empire among other people surrounding it and stuff. So it's a visual image of the Christian living in the world while still allegiant in Christ, right? And like us, the Philippian church struggled under their earthly governmental citizenship while their ultimate belonging is to Christ as citizens of heaven. And that's something to be... To, to think about, really. So grand themes and the joy, uh, the joy of the gospel shines throughout, uh, you know, this whole thing. And, and so just listen to some of the verses on joy. I always pray with joy, he says. Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. I will continue with all of you your progress and joy in the faith. Make my joy complete, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Welcome him in the, in the Lord with great joy. You know, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it again, rejoice. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Like he just over and over in this letter, he talks about joy so much. And I hope that we can start to rediscover that, right? Philippians evokes a particular joy. The joy of Christ and the joy of being in Christ. A joy which remains and even thrives in the darkest of places. Like prison cells in captivity and under persecution. So, like in COVID lockdown, right, when it doesn't always feel great and you really miss the fellowship of being in the same room with others, it's available for us in Christ right now, standing together as we partner in the fellowship of the gospel. It's my hope and it's my prayer that Philippians will enhance our experience of this particular joy. You know, I've also, and I've, I, as I've already said, I've also longed to be back together with all of you and everybody watching at home. I'm hoping you can be here someday as well. Um, I, I, I felt that so strongly. Everybody knows me. My wife is like in her heyday. She's an introvert. She's like, oh, if I never have to leave the house and I can just garden, I'm so happy, <laughs> right? But I drives me crazy. She does long to be with people. And, uh, but, but, you know, that was an extreme comment. Uh, but... You know, I've longed for this, to be back together with you, you all. I've, I've felt the pressures that you've felt. I, I hear the news that you hear. I've, I've felt imprisoned by it all. Locked up 
But there is joy to be had in great fellowship with Jesus and with each other, even from afar, even sometimes from great distances. I miss you guys. I'm looking at Moses back there. I love Moses. Moses and I have so much fun talking. I haven't seen Moses in months. And I'm sure you miss others as well, right? Let's center ourselves in the words of this wonderful epistle to once again put away fear and grasp hold of faith. Because we need that. We need to do that. We need to eradicate our anxiety. And we need to find joy once more in abundance. No application, but just get excited about what we're going to hear and start to think about it. Start to let the Holy Spirit fill your heart with joy as we study this together over the coming weeks. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that no matter what's happening on the ground around us, You are sovereign and nothing surprises you. And you have called us to be people of purpose, people of love, people that embrace others of any walk of life, uh, any status in life, and to love them well into your kingdom. And we pray, Father God, that you would knit us together, that you would cinch up this bag that is 6-8, that you would pull it tight together as we walk into the fall and we learn more about what you want from us and what you want to say to us and how you want to use us here in the Eastern Main Line. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are, you are who you are and you pursue us as your people. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So.